0: Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer, and we desire that all the glory would go to you today. That all our days would bring glory to your name. Whether those be days spent at church or at home or at work, we recognize that from you and through you are two, and to you are all things, and to you belongs the glory. So Lord, receive the glory this morning as we open your word, as we worship, as we fellowship together. And as we sang earlier, we pray that you would tune our heart to sing your praise, that our hearts would be drawn to you, rightly responding to you, all that you are, all that you say, and all that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to welcome you all this morning and give a a greeting to those of you who are here, a greeting to those who are watching at home. Um, and also a greeting to some who may be sitting in the basement today. We're sort of doing a, a, a test run, a dry run, for an overflow room. And for those who uh, may feel a little more comfortable with more distance and, and masking and things like that, we plan to make that available uh, in the coming weeks. So we're doing a test drive today. I don't know if anybody's sitting down there, but good morning if you are. Um, but today we're going to be returning to our study in the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us today, I want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. And we've been preaching uh, through the book of Exodus since this past summer. And we've arrived at Exodus chapter 20, where God's people, Israel, have come to Mount Sinai and God has given them the law. And since the first lie of Satan, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we know that people have always tended to view this idea of law as negative. People see the law, people see commandments as restrictive, as somehow maybe keeping us from experiencing life to the fullest. But those who have been redeemed, those who have received God's gracious gift of salvation, we are those who come to see the law through a different set of eyes. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. Verse 47, he says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. In verse 72, he writes, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 77, he says, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. In verse 97, he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 174, he writes, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Today, we're going to begin sort of a mini-series within the series of uh, the book of Exodus. I've been talking through the narrative of Exodus, tracing the story and, and, and the flow of the events. But now we're here. The law, as we saw last week, has been delivered. Specifically, the Ten Commandments have been delivered. And now what I'd like to do is take some time to actually focus on the law itself, to examine what the law teaches and how it touches our lives today. My hope is that in the coming weeks, as we unpack these Ten Commandments, that our hearts would really be aligned with the psalmists, that we would love God's law, that we would delight in God's law, that we would grow to understand it more clearly and come to apply it more faithfully. So the first thing we have to do is, is, this is going to be somewhat of a topical message first thing we have to do in studying the law is, first of all, define our terms. Uh, Words have meaning. And especially the words we find in Scripture. Uh, It's especially important that we understand the meaning of those words. So the word law, as it's used in Scripture, actually can be used in several different ways. Sometimes it's used more broadly. And other times it's used in a more specific sense. Sometimes Scripture refers to the law as really anything that God commands, Not just specific to here in the Old Testament or to the Mosaic Covenant, but God's moral will for his creatures. I believe Paul is referring to the law in this sense in Romans chapter 2. verse 14, Paul writes, "...when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts." While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul says there's people who don't have the written law, but they have a sense of what is right and wrong imprinted upon their hearts. And sometimes scripture uses the law just to refer to that moral intuition, that conscience that we have that is aware that there is a God and that he is righteous and that there are certain expectations for us as his creatures. So sometimes the law is used more broadly in that sense. Other times, the law is used um, to refer to the law of Moses. You'll see it called the book of the law, referring to the first five books. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what we sometimes call the Pentateuch. And sometimes that is called the book of the law or the law of Moses. In Nehemiah 8, chapter 1, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. What we find there is that Ezra read it and that he unpacked it and gave the sense. He was preaching the law, preaching from the Pentateuch, those first five books. Jesus refers to this as well in Luke 24. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus refers to those first five books as the law of Moses. So sometimes the law is just God's moral will. Sometimes it refers to those first five books. But it can also be used more narrowly to refer to the legal commands found within the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we find in Exodus chapter 20 and the several chapters to follow. And as we read through the law, Exodus, and and even the following books, we find there are 613 commands that make up this Mosaic Law. Malachi 4 verse 4. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Horeb is another word for Sinai saying, remember those laws, those statutes, those commandments, all 613 of them that were delivered to you there. So sometimes the law specifically refers to that. But we can even get more specific. Sometimes the law refers more narrowly to the Ten Commandments as the embodiment and the summary and the source of all of those 613 commands and even as a representative summary of God's moral will for mankind. We find the Ten Commandments Commandments referred to in this way as the law in Romans chapter 13. In verse 8, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul looks to the Ten Commandments as representative of the whole, refers to them as the law. So keep in mind, when we use the word law, I want to make sure we understand that that we're referring to things perhaps in different ways. That it can refer to God's commands in general, maybe to the first five books of the Bible, to the legal demands of the Mosaic Covenant that are given at Sinai, or even just the Ten Commandments themselves. But for the purpose of our study in Exodus, when we refer to the law, when we talk about God's law, we're going to be focusing on the law that God gave through Moses at Sinai. What is found here in this book is part of the Mosaic Covenant, and even specifically the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, and then the case laws that follow them. So that's a little bit of context. What do we mean when we say law? And we're talking specific to this context, the giving of the law to Israel at Sinai. And today I'd like to address primarily this question, and this sort of frames the outline for this morning. Why should we study the law? If we are not Old Testament Israel, if we're not standing at the foot of Sinai, if we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, why should we study the law? Because if you're a student of Scripture in the New Testament, if you believe in the gospel, then you know that we are Christians who worship a crucified and risen Savior who has fulfilled the law. We know from the clear teaching of the scriptures that the law is not to be kept as a way of sort of achieving our own salvation and earning God's approval and making ourselves acceptable. We can't do that. It won't work. The law cannot save us. Acts chapter 13, Paul preached this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law cannot free you from sin. The law cannot merit salvation. Romans chapter eight, Paul writes this, that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What is it that the law cannot do, Paul? And how did God do this? Paul says, by sending his own son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's something the law cannot do. It cannot save us. And our keeping of the law cannot make us acceptable to God. We know that Christ does this. And that is what God did by sending his son. Jesus kept the moral commands of the law. He did that on our behalf. The ceremonial laws are no longer necessary. The, the sacrifices and the priests and the tabernacle, all of it, because Jesus' is saving work, which all of those things point to, that has been accomplished. So the old covenant of which the law was the key defining feature, that old covenant, as we've talked about over the last two weeks, That old covenant has been replaced by a newer and better covenant that is inaugurated through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're in a different situation today, by God's grace. And the blessings that we receive are not through keeping the law, but through faith. Through faith in Christ, the blessing of salvation is ours. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, You are not under the law, but you're under what? Grace. Grace. He tells the Galatians in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, that new covenant blessing, he says, then you are not under the law. So if all that is true, again comes the question, why should we study the law? What value does the law have for New Testament saints? And here's the very short and simple answer, which we'll unpack. The answer is this, we should study the law because it is given for our instruction. It's given for our instruction in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 it says all scripture is breathed out by God that includes the law and it is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work Listen, if we want to be complete, if we want to be whole as Christians, if we want to be mature in our faith and grow to be who it is that God desires for us to be, then it's going to require the study, among other things, of the law. It has been given to us and is profitable to that end. So even if the law is not written to us, it is profitable for us. Even if we are not under the law, listen, we need the law. We need God's law. I'd like to share with you this morning five ways in which the law instructs us today. Five ways the law instructs us. The first is this. The law, first of all, shows us what God is like. The law shows us what God is like. I won't belabor this point because we've looked at it last week and spent some time here, but it bears repeating. The law is the expression of God's perfections. It's the the expression of his holy attributes. The law flows from who God is, and it shows us what he is like. It, it, It is in accordance with his nature. What's fascinating about this is that, you know, Israel, Old Testament Israel, wasn't the only nation that had laws. But Israel was the only nation that had a God like this. And that meant their laws were different. Many of their laws were different. Yahweh was completely unlike the pagan deities of that world. If you do a study on the the gods that these pagan nations worshipped, these gods were covetous, these gods were adulterous, these gods were murderous, these gods stole, these gods were not ethical or moral or fair or just, but Israel's God was different. And you can see how the Ten Commandments flows directly from God's attributes, from His holy character. The law shows us God's uniqueness and then establishes parameters for His people because His people are supposed to be unique. They are to be a holy nation who becomes more and more like the God that they worship. The danger of idolatry, which was shown again and again in the Old Testament, is that you become like what you worship. Psalm 115.8 speaks of the futility of idols. They have hands, but they can't do anything. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And the psalmist writes, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. Worship is formative. So as God's people fear and obey and worship the true God, they will begin to reflect his image more and more and become a holy spirit. We need the law because the law shows us what God is like. There's a second reason we need the law. Secondly, it shows us that we are under authority. The law shows us that we are under authority. Think about this question. Why don't people like God's law? Why is it that it automatically causes people to bristle, causes us to dig our heels in and to feel resistant? I can tell you, it's not because we don't understand what it says. It's because we do understand what it says and we don't like it. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like what the law shows us. We don't like being reminded that we are under authority. We are not supreme. We do not have the freedom to to design our own life and custom build our own morality. No, we as creatures are under the authority of the Creator. Ask yourself this question. How do you respond when God's word tells you something that you don't like? How do you respond when God's word calls you to something that you don't want to do? We don't like being told what to do, but as believers, we have to recognize, very simply, the authority of God. We have to recognize his authority. His authority is communicated clearly in his word, in his commands. Thou shalt not is a statement of authority thou shalt is also a statement of authority unless you think this whole authority thing is just that's for the old testament that's that's for israel that's a long time ago and we're hanging out with jesus in the new testament and things are different now well consider this god's authority is represented not only in the written word but also in the living word Jesus Christ comes to us with all authority. He is the king, the anointed one that we sung about this morning from Psalm 2. And you only have two options. You can bow the knee and kiss the Son, or you can perish in the way. Jesus is Lord. He tells his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the authority of Christ. So you can't dodge this issue of authority by sort of ignoring the Old Testament and just hanging out in the New Testament with Jesus. Because listen, if you resent God's law, if you resent that authority telling you what is right and wrong and what you must and must not do, if you resent that, then you will also resist the command of Christ. You will also buck against his lordship. And Jesus is the king who reigns over all. We need to embrace the law. We need to embrace what the law shows us, that we are a people who are under authority. So the law shows us what God is like. The law shows us that we're under authority. And then third, the law also shows us that we are guilty. It shows us that we are guilty. The law shows us what God is like and tells us what we are like as well. The law makes clear that there's not one of us who is innocent. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. As we read God's word, as we look into his law, it shines light onto us. And it exposes things in us that are not right. It exposes our disobedience. It exposes our failures. And the result is that every mouth is stopped. No one can protest God's judgment. No one can protest the righteous condemnation that falls upon sinners because the law proves to us who we are and what we have done. Paul says in Romans 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the last of the Ten Commandments. And Paul says that as he studied that verse and read that verse and thought, well, what does it mean, thou shalt not covet? He realizes, oh, that's something that I do all the time. And then he realizes, I'm a sinner. The law tells us that we are guilty. Jesus uses the law this way in the New Testament. He uses the law to point out the guilt and the sin of a man who is very self-righteous. In Luke chapter 18, this ruler asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, sort of tongue-in-cheek here, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But then he pivots and presses into this man's heart. He says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus quotes that second table of the law, that second half of the law that has to do with our relationships with other people. And how does the man answer? He says, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now, why does Jesus bring up the Ten Commandments? Why does Jesus tell this man to sell everything and follow him? Well, this man claimed to have kept that second half of the law, which is still, I think, a pretty big reach. I don't know if he's telling the truth or not. But he says, all of these things I've kept since my youth. And Jesus says, even if that's true, I know that you have a worship problem. You love your wealth more than you love God. So Christ's command to this man, exposes his false worship and shows him, you've not kept the commandments, you've broken the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. He says, you love your stuff more than you love God. And you haven't kept the commandments. Listen, spiritual pride and self-righteousness is a deadly disease. It's terminal in a spiritual sense. And the law graciously exposes our sin so that we will have an accurate understanding of who we really are are that diagnosis doesn't always feel good but it is good it doesn't feel good but it's good without the law we are fools who will remain fools we are blind to the true condition of our soul we need the law we need to study the law because it shows us that we are guilty it 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 keeps us from becoming self-righteous Fourth, and flowing very directly from this third point, that we need the law because it shows us we're guilty. Fourth, the law also shows us that we need Christ. It shows us that we need Christ. The law shows us our need for Christ in two ways. First of all, the law exposes our guilt, bringing condemnation, not just to make us feel bad. That's not the goal. That is a means to an end. And the end, the goal is to show us that we need atonement. We need a sacrifice. We need payment to be made for our guilt. The goal is not just to feel guilty. The goal is to see our need for atonement, our need for forgiveness and cleansing. And the law does that. It shows us our need for Christ. The law also shows us our need by exalting the standard of righteousness, saying, listen, it's not just that you've broken these commands and now you have to deal with this problem of punishment, but the law also sets this standard that must be met. And in doing so, the law removes any foolish notion That we can somehow merit our salvation, that we can earn it. The law shows us not just that we need atonement, it also shows us we need a mediator. We need someone who can speak on our behalf, someone who can provide for us what we lack. And that is Jesus. This is the good news. The law exposes our need, and Christ is able to meet that need. Christ is able to atone for our failures, and He also is able to give us His righteous merits so that everything that the law demands, We can have. We have it through Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen, the law is necessary and the law is precious because it drives us to Christ, to the only one who can atone for our sin and the only one who can make us righteous, make us acceptable before the holy God who has established his standard in his law. The gospel shows us our need, or the law rather shows us our need for Christ. It points us to the solution of the gospel. Those who embrace the promise of salvation in Jesus are those who will submit to the lordship of Christ and find find refuge from sin and judgment at his cross. That's very simply repentance and faith. The law pushes us to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified listen if you study the law and your conclusion is that you can try harder and do better and somehow fulfill this law you haven't really gotten the point because the law is meant to show us that that's impossible And we need what only Jesus can do, what only Jesus can provide. Saving faith means we trust not in our own efforts, but we run to Jesus and trust in him to redeem us. Friend, if you don't know Jesus today, and if you see Christianity as this long list of laws that you have to stop doing all these bad things and be a really, really good person, and then maybe God will let you into heaven. If that's how you see Christianity, then you're missing it. There's far, it's far different than that. If you see the church as all these people who have gotten really, really good at being righteous, then you don't really know us yet. The church is a group of people who recognize that we are absolutely bankrupt apart from Christ. And we come to him and say, Jesus, I need you to atone for my sin and I need you to make me acceptable to God. That's our only hope. That's why we worship Christ, is because he has fulfilled the law and frees us from the punishment and curse of the law. And as we study God's law, it helps those of us who are saved, those of us who know Christ, it helps us to love Jesus more. It's not just something we need so that we can come to Christ, it's something we need to deepen and increase our gratitude and our love, to expand our worship and our joy, to say, look at everything that God has commanded and calls us to, aren't you glad for Jesus? So if you don't know Christ today, please hear me loud and clear. The law is not a hurdle you have to clear in order to be accepted by God. It's meant to show you that you simply need Christ. You need Jesus. So the law shows us our need for Christ. And then fifth, and this is the longest point and the last point. Fifth, the law also shows us how we are to live. The law does show us how we are to live. It does this in a few ways. First of all, the law, God's law, the Ten Commandments and the case laws that that follow. God's law reveals the norms for created order. God's law reveals the norms for created order. It tells us how the world should operate based on what the world is. You and I are limited. I can't decide to go out and just fly home instead of drive home. I can't just go out and flap my wings and fly over to 10th and Castle where I live. I'm limited by certain laws of nature. I am made as a human with certain limitations, and I only function in certain ways. And part of that includes gravity, okay? So God's law is similar in the sense that it, it speaks to who we are, how we are made, and tells us how we are to operate in the world that God has made. And this is interestingly why even pagan law codes, you, look, you can study other ancient laws, and there, there will be some similarities with the Ten Commandments. You'll find prohibitions against things like murder and theft and things like that. Now, they're not always consistent, but you'll find traces of the same kinds of things. Why is that? Is that because the Jews copied from other people around them? No. It's because everybody is created, and everyone has a sense of what is right and wrong in their heart. There are some things that everyone knows are wrong, and it's been this way since creation. But again, today we have so much confusion when it comes to what is right and wrong because people have thrown off God's law, even throwing off the norms of created order when it comes to marriage, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexuality. We are seeing today a rebellion against God's law, yes, doing things that God says people should not do but you're also seeing a rebellion against the way the world is, the way God has made it to be. And God's law commanding us what to do and what not to do fits perfectly with the world as it has been created. So God's law reveals to us the norms of creation, and it shows us how to live. The law is an application and a demonstration of certain transcendent realities. And you can choose to spit into the wind, or you can choose to be wise and abide by God's law. Those are really the two options. It shows us how things should be and how things really are. It roots us in reality. The law not only shows us and reveals the norms of nature, but it also, and this is helpful for us, the law also shows us how to live and that it defines true justice. It defines true justice. Now that word is a word that is getting used by people who reject God today. It's getting used by them. It's a constant word. You see it in the headlines. You see it in film. You hear it in music. You see it social media all over the place. There's been this huge resurgence of interest in justice. Our world knows that justice is important. That's written on our hearts. But how do we define justice? How do we define it? Who is it who determines What amounts to oppression and what amounts to injustice? Who is it who determines what our ethical and moral responsibilities and obligations are as people who live in this world, as people who live as part of the community of humanity? Too often, the human conception, the world's conception of justice, is warped and it is deficient. We need our understanding of justice to be informed and corrected and strengthened by the truth. And where do we find that truth? We find it in God's law. We find it in God's law. C.S. Lewis commented on how the psalmist could say he delights in God's law. And he he really wrestled with that. and, And he one time reflected, he says, that's strange. You delight in all sorts of things. God, his promises, his word, or his grace. But who says, I love laws? Well, the psalmist does. It's like arriving on solid ground after a shortcut gone awry through the mud and the mire. As you're messy and squishy and stinky, fumbling your way through life, then you hit something solid, law. Isn't that a beautiful description of what's going on in our world today? Trudging through the muck and the mire, searching for something solid, People are looking for justice. They want to know what it is and how to bring it about. Listen, God's law reveals to us true justice. It's firm, it's solid. Many people may not like it, but this is why we need it. Yes, the law shows us how to live, it gives us direction in the midst of a culture that is completely confused. So, the law reveals to us the norms of the created order. It defines true justice for us, but also the law shows us, as the redeemed, how we are to live. It tells us what a life looks like that is pleasing to God. Let me ask you, do you want to live a life that is pleasing to God? If you're a Christian, then I hope you do. Our response to God's grace, our response to the cleansing He's given us and Christ's atonement for us and the fact that we are accepted by God and adopted into His family— our whole life is to be a big thank you of worshiping God and seeking to please him. Romans chapter 12 says that we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And we do that in light of all of his mercies to us. So your response to God needs to look like obedience and a desire to please him and honor him. In Colossians verse one or chapter 1 verse 10, Paul prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's to be a priority for us. That we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And Paul defines what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him. It looks like this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That we know him and that we live and behave in a way that shows we know him. That we bear fruit That we do good works. So here's the question. How are we to know what those good works are? How are we to know what kinds of things we should be doing in order to please and honor our Savior? Well, the law shows us. The New Testament tells us we're not justified by keeping the law, yes. But nowhere does the New Testament repeal the ethics of the law. You see, God's moral will is eternal. It is unchanging. And we learn what pleases God as we read his law. This is why Martin Luther introduces his catechism with this statement. And he's getting ready to talk about the Ten Commandments. And he says this. Thus we have in the Ten Commandments a summary of divine instructions telling us what we have to do to make our whole life pleasing to God and showing us the true source of fountain from And in which all good works must spring and process, so that no work or anything can be good and pleasing to God, however great and costly in the eyes of the world, unless it is in keeping with the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther defines good works as guided by and motivated by the truths found here in God's law, in specifically the Ten Commandments. So why should we study the law? We need it. It shows us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. It reveals the norms of the created order, defines true justice, and it defines and outlines good works, the things God commands us to do. So yes, we are not under the law in a covenantal sense. But listen, we are under what the law points to. The law points to God's perfect Moral will, his holiness, his designs for creation, his standard of justice. And we are under what the law points to, even if we're not under the law. Or as Apner Chow puts it, we are not under the law, but we follow the logic that the law intends. I think that's helpful. There's several texts that show us this logic that the law intends. We find this in the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 applies the logic of the law. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, now what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is not revoking the law. That's for sure. He's not canceling it. But he's also not, he, he's not adding to the law or raising the bar. Jesus is actually giving the right and better interpretation and application of the law. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day, they had a very limited and narrow understanding of the law and its application. They would have said it's fine to look and to lust. Or as some of my old coworkers used to say, you, know, you can look at the menu as long as you don't order that was the mentality of Jesus' day. Well, as long as you don't commit adultery, as long as you don't act on it, then it's fine. And Jesus says, you don't really understand the law. You've heard it said, you know, this bare bones command, but Jesus then takes the spirit and the heart and the intent and the logic of that command and applies it and says, this also applies to your thoughts, to what you do with your eyes. Jesus uses the logic of the law. The apostle Paul does the same thing in several different situations, one of which is when he's addressing the issue of compensating ministers of the gospel, financially supporting elders and pastors and missionaries. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9:8. He says, "Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same?" And his readers would have gone, "Wait a second, where in the law does it command us to support elders and those who preach and those who go with the gospel?" Paul says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Wait a second, that's about farming, Paul. That's not about the church. That's not about paying pastors. That's about livestock. But Paul applies the logic that the law intends. In verse 10, he says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul quotes the same verse and says that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle the ox. And he applies that to the church in terms of supporting and financially compensating ministers of the gospel. I think we have a good example there with both Paul and Jesus that we as Christians, yes, we're not under the law, but we are under the logic that the law intends. Those principles apply and it shows us how we are to live. So this has been kind of a scattered sermon from many different texts. We've not been walking through Exodus today. But I do want to just pause before we finish and just try to think about what we should do with this today. How do we apply this? I want to encourage you to think about applying these truths that we need the law and that it's helpful, it's necessary. Apply this in three different spheres. Three different spheres for application and obedience. James says, we don't just want to be hearers, we want to be doers, right, of the word. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to encourage you, first of all, to apply this personally. This needs to be applied in the personal realm for you as an individual. I think that you ought to respond to these truths, to what the law is and why we need it and how it helps us. You ought to respond to this by committing to study and embrace the law. Do not neglect this precious, rich portion of Scripture. And we're going to help you do that by preaching, not just preaching about the law, as I've done this morning, but actually preaching the law. We'll be doing that in the, in the coming weeks. But I want to encourage you to, to dive into that, to embrace the law as you seek to know God and live a life that's pleasing Him. Commit to honor its author, to embrace the authority of the law, to admit the verdict of the law in your own life, that you are guilty, to accept the prescription of the law, that you need Christ. Again, if you're not a believer today, Let the law make clear in your heart and your eyes that your only hope is Christ because you're a lawbreaker and you deserve condemnation and there's no way you can do enough to make up for your failures. There's no way you can ever clear the bar unless you come to Christ in faith and repentance. So accept the prescription of the law and then adopt the ethical implications of the law. Personally commit to live a life that is in conformity to what God has revealed pleases him. Obey him personally. We seek to obey God's will, not out of a cold duty, but out of gratitude for his grace. Commit to obey what God reveals to you. Not with self-pity, sort of feeling sorry for yourself that you have to miss out on all the quote good stuff that's out there in the world like Lot's wife who looks over her shoulder at Sodom as they're running away. No, we ought to obey the law in faith, believing that it is good and it is true, and this outlines a better way of living than than the sinful things that are always calling our name. Personally commit to embrace and study and believe and obey God's law. That's the personal application. Don't just walk away with maybe a better understanding of how the law fits in history. Walk away today. My prayer is that you would walk away today with a renewed desire to know and to submit to God's law. But I also think there's a layer of application here that is corporate. Not just what you must do personally, that's the first sphere, but the second sphere, one that is corporate. This is for our church. And it is for our church in this way. I want to exhort you to make use of the law in discipleship. We are called To be and make disciples of Jesus. And part of what that includes is teaching them everything Jesus commanded. And Jesus taught on the law and commanded obedience to the law. We ought to make use of God's moral commands. And even make use of the unique civil and ceremonial laws. Teaching those, drawing the truth out from them that applies differently today. And make use of that in our discipleship. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That includes the law. That belongs in the church. It belongs in our discussions. It belongs in our discipleship. It belongs in our counseling. God's law has much benefit to offer. We don't want to be malnourished Christians who fail to feast on the truths that are revealed in God's law. And we don't want to be vulnerable as a church to the world's distortions of justice and morality. We need a worldview that is grounded in God's law. So this is something that corporately needs to be reinforced here. It's something we use in discipleship. This is a really practical thing. Again, Jesus said we should teach new disciples everything that he commanded. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus upholds the morality of the law. So we need to follow the example of Jesus. We need to follow his logic as we seek to make disciples. Don't neglect this profitable portion of scripture. Even in our corporate mission, our corporate efforts to make disciples. But there's a third sphere in which I think we can use the law. In which it is necessary for us. And I want to encourage you with this. And that's not just personally you know, in my own heart, and not even corporately here, us together. But the law belongs out there as well. And it touches on our mission of proclaiming the gospel to those who do not yet know Christ. Proclaim God's law. Do not shy away from telling people, thus says the Lord. This is what is right and wrong. This is what God commands. This is what God forbids. This is how he created his world to operate. This is true justice. This is what is moral and immoral. Let the law expose sin. Listen, we want people to come and believe in Jesus, but how will they recognize that they need Christ until the law exposes their wickedness, until the law exposes their weakness, until the law exposes their inability? It's only then that they will desire to know the good news about who Jesus is. We need to share the bad news. We need to define sin biblically. We need to use the law to prick the conscience. Then we can call people not to rely on the law, but to run to Christ, the one who can save them and make them new. I think this applies to our our, our proclamation of Christ. And listen, I think this is really practical even for parents. I know we have a number of parents in the room, some who may be parents someday, You know, there's a popular uh, parenting book that's titled, Give Them Grace. And I would say, amen, yes, we should. We should give grace to our children and model for them what God is really like. But the grace that they need most is not grace from us. It's not. The grace our children need most is the grace of Christ. And they will only run to Christ if the law shows them their need. So parents, give your children the law. Hold them accountable to it to obedience, to honesty, to honoring their father and mother from not stealing, from loving God more than they love their video games or anything else. You want to put it in the blank. Preach the law to your kids. Parent them towards God's truth. If you don't, they'll never really feel their need for Christ. They'll feel that they're probably good enough. So parents, yes, give them grace, but first give them the law as well. Give them the law. So yes, as Christians, we are not under the law, but I hope you've taken away from this sermon this morning, this point, that the law is good. The law is good. And it is to be rightly embraced by the redeemed. We embrace it because it shows us what God is like. It shows us that we are under authority. It shows us that we are guilty. It shows us that we need Christ. And it shows us how to live. So we dare not rely on the law but we make use of it in the way that God intended. It is for us. It is a precious resource of truth right at our fingertips, given for our instruction. So will you join me as we study it? Let's faithfully seek to see all that God has revealed in his law. Let's seek to grow in gratitude for his truth and especially for the redeeming work of Jesus that this law points us to. And let's seek to obey. Let's seek to do the good works that God has ordained for us and to live lives that walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. God has shown us the way. He's told us what he wants. He's told, told us what pleases him. So let's respond to all that he shows us in obedience and in faith with Christ always before, before us and his law informing us of what it looks like to love him and to be like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us a heart like the psalmist, a heart to love your law, a heart to delight in your commandments, a heart to meditate on it day and night, to meditate on it so that we might understand, so that we might see you more clearly, so that we might live in a way that honors you, so that we might recognize how precious a gift it is to have a Savior, your Son, Jesus, who redeems us from the curse of the law, fulfilling it on our behalf, bearing its punishment at the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and done for us what the law could not do. You have saved us. We give you praise and glory, confessing our weakness and our absolute need. Lord, for those who may be among us today, who do not yet know you, who have not repented of their sin and bowed the knee to Christ, who have not yet placed their full faith in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, I pray that today they would feel the weight of conviction that comes from the law, knowing that they have not kept your commands. I pray they would run to Jesus and to receive grace and salvation in his name. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our mighty Savior. Amen.